Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's guest is Saverio Bianchi. 16 years and 50 iconic brands later, Saverio drives e-commerce acceleration and coaches leadership transformation faster than ever in luxury, beauty, and fashion. With clients in London, Paris, New York, Dubai, and Melbourne, Saverio and his boutique strategy firm Atelier and Avenue coach, advise, and lead VCs, brands, and retailers in e-commerce, marketing, and CRM, from strategy all the way through to execution. Saverio also speaks at international conferences and writes about e-commerce leadership on his blog, SaverioBianchi.com. In today's episode, We discuss why voracious curiosity is Severio's number one trait that he hires for and how it can be an engine to fuel your learning organization. We understand why industries can be inherently complex but not necessarily complicated and how Lego bricks can help us close that gap. And finally, we learn the art of reframing problems and when to push back on a client if they ask you to solve a problem because that problem hasn't been well-formulated. This is a great interview filled with very tactical nuggets on leading and building strong, agile cultures, and I hope you enjoy. Severio, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Great being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I thought we could start by looking at your company, which is Atelier and Avenue. And what really interested me about the company you have is that it serves a very unique niche between large consultancies on one hand and e-commerce agencies on the other end of the spectrum. And you are very distinct in that you are not an agency and you have this very unique model, which we're going to get into. But could you start by taking us back to that founding moment and how you spotted this gap in the market for a viable business? If I have to articulate the why I've started this nine years ago, the fundamental aspects are based on three elements. First and foremost is really a a visceral one, which was my desire to never again have to ask for permission and find that freedom of action uh, to manage my time and manage who I work with and how I work with them That for me has always been something extremely, extremely important. I come from a family of people who own and run their own uh, businesses. And so that's always been, I've always had that fire inside me. And after a bunch of years, uh, quite a few years on client side, as an employee, I decided to start. So let's say the the initial fire comes from a deeply personal uh, reason, which married with spotting a gap in the market between, like you were saying, the big consultancies, uh, I call them the gray suits of the the big consultancies and the checkered shirts of the Shoreditch and Brooklyn agencies, where 
there was a gap and something that at the beginning I couldn't quite point my finger at and by having spent many years on client side and luckily you know working on the receiving end collaborating end of these big consultancies and great agencies I realized there was a better way to do that job because you have these big consultancies that come in and have a great wealth of experience obviously but you know they deliver a beautiful 100 slides deck on the CEO's deck and then they flee the scene. And then you have agencies which do some fantastic creative work and development work, but they end up selling strategy as an add-on and which more often than not, it just so happens to maximize their billable time. So there's many elements of conflict of interest and being as unbiased as possible that was missing. And I felt this need, I felt this pain when I was client side. And so I decided I'm going to take the leap. And in the early days, again, it was like nine years ago, I had no kids and independent with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now was like, this is the perfect time to jump and take the risk. And I'm so happy that I did that because that's been the best uh, professional choice that I've ever made and made me very, very happy and allowed me to give my best to my clients. And so that gap what it really was, was having a nimble, small, really agile team of practitioners. So people who are not just used to looking at business from the outside in, but that are used to running a team, running a business, running especially direct to consumer business. And therefore that allowed me to really connect with the founders and the CEOs of these businesses. And that meant that as they were slowly falling out of love of the big consultancies, it opened the door to this new breed of uh, strategy firm like Atelier Avenue to come in and help them crack those big strategic problems without a conflict of interest, which brings me to the third key pillar of the why I've started this, which is I knew that there was a much better way of doing this, not just from a service point of view, but also from an ethical point of view. Throughout my career, I've seen my fair share of, let's say, behaviors less than perfect when it comes to giving client advice. And I could not tolerate that. And so for example, once uh, I was on client side and there was this third party company, consultancy company who provided basically support to, to run a tender for a client to pick the right e-commerce agency, development agency and so on. And they were obviously being a tender, a procurement tender, they were supposed to doing that with a high degree of care, with the interest of the client at heart. And long story short, they picked a winning agency who got the job. And then a couple of months later, I found out that this same agency were the ones who financed a bunch of uh, events that this agency were, that these uh, consultancies were running. So even if the choice was absolutely impeccable, it still leaves a bad taste in the mouth of a client. The fact that the person that you trusted to help you make a critical investment decision 
did not have a complete clean slate, but instead had uh, some conflict of interest. And this kind of ethical flag is something that I really, really care about. I like how you've broken this down into the constituent part of a market problem, a strategic problem, and a personal problem as well. So on the market side, seeing the practices that these other companies have engaged in and realizing you want to distance yourself from them, strategically realizing that there's a gap between the gray suits and the checkered shirts. I love that analogy, by the way. I'm definitely stealing that. Um, and seeing that your company could exist there. But if we think about this like a series of concentric rings, the ring in the middle and where this has to start is the personal change. Because for founders and CEOs, personal growth to many extents does equal professional growth. And it was your desire to not want to ask for permission again that catalyzed starting your company. And nine years later, here we are. Now, I'm interested to dig into that center of the ring a little bit because you started and, and certainly the most emotive perhaps of these is that visceral reaction of never wanting to have to ask for permission again. What was it like coming to that realization that you never wanted to have to ask for permission? And what did it feel like giving yourself permission to believe that? It was incredibly liberating. Let me take a couple of steps back to the early days of my career. So first of all, I've been blessed. I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. I've had a chance to start my career in one of the most amazing brands in the world at the headquarter of Ferrari Automotive back in Italy, where I'm from, and learn everything that I've learned, a lot of what I've learned on the field in a business that within a small town, it goes from ideation to final roaring product. So there was an incredible place to, to learn that. But with great organizations come great accountability and uh, a lot of processes and red tape and so on. Just that sense of having to justify when I wanted a day off, having to justify whether I wasn't feeling well, I needed to stay at home for a couple of days because of a bad cold or whatever. It was just something that rubbed me the wrong way or even having to excessively justify what resources to, you know, who to hire versus who not and, and so on in my team and so on. And for example, I've always been a big, a fan of hiring on potential as opposed to hiring on, on experience because for sure you need a fundamental solid base of experience and skills, especially if it's a technical specialized job. But at the same time, you get way more connection with someone who's willing, who sees that you're taking a chance on them, that you see the energy that they have and the opportunities that these people can bring to life as opposed to basing it only on oh they've done this job already for three years five years exactly the same job you're never going to get someone as motivated and as driven and as ready to grow and contribute to the overall team as someone who feels like you've made a bet on them and so 
the bond that creates is also much, much stronger. So back to your question, it was a fire that grew slowly. And at some point it was burning so much that I told myself, this is the moment, either I do it now or I'm not going to do it because then, you know, you get kids get into the picture and, you know, <laughs> mortgages get into the picture and then risk aversion gets into the picture more. And so I was like, let me take it early on and then I will turn it into something. What's the worst thing that can happen? I'm going to go back corporate if that doesn't work. Luckily enough, nine years have passed. The business has grown incredibly organically. By design, we remained a, a small, agile boutique kind of firm. And so it worked out, but incredibly liberating. The sense of giving notice of resi resignation the last time before starting my business was uh, one of the best experiences I ever had. I can imagine it, it might also be liberating hiring someone with the knowledge that they don't need to have everything figured out yet. But if you believe that their trajectory is going to get them there, then you can take the bet on them. And it's almost like as a recruiter, which all founders and CEOs are, you can become comfortable hiring people who don't have all the answers. So I can imagine that in your own hiring process, that creates a lot more freedom for the kind of candidates that you might decide to vet as opposed to having someone who's got everything figured out on a resume. I believe the a candidate who's checking all the boxes on paper, and don't get me started on what those boxes are because nine out of 10 job descriptions are just ludicrous, but that's, that's another topic. But it just having all those boxes checked on paper, it gives a full sense of security. If that person has already has those boxes checked on paper, why in the world would they want to join your business? Are they either fleeing their previous job because it didn't work or are they coming just for money? And if they're coming just for money, and don't get me wrong, money is, in, is important, then you're not going to be able to create that sense of a team and that strong of a bond with your team and the wider, as well as the wider organization. So getting someone that you know, you have a strong feeling that they can grow into that role, that have the hunger and the fire inside to really get to that point, to me, that's priceless. That's, I'll take that over expertise and experience with the right proportions, obviously, any day of the week, because Today, if you're voraciously curious, that to me is a number one characteristic of someone that I would hire, but whether in my team or in a client's team, when I'm doing interim executive roles for them or help them restructure their organizations and so on. Why is that such an important skill for you? Why do you prioritize that as the, the number one trait for people that you want to hire? To me, it's an engine. Uh, voracious curiosity is an engine that makes so that you're willing to learn. Any organization is only going to be as strong as their speed of learning and adapting. And so someone who is willing to learn and learn fast to then reapply and keep learning is someone who is 
the perfect fit, especially for a direct-to-consumer business or brand that requires a certain type of growth mindset to be able to rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat uh, the whole testing and learning process, uh, both for business execution as well as themselves as human beings and professionals. And I'm that kind of nerd myself and <laughs> I relate a lot better with people <laughs> like me who like that and total nerd pride uh, in that. And that served me well because e-commerce and digital is certainly not something that I learned in university when I graduated back in 2004. That's something that I had to learn on the field by doing and if you have the passion like i've had like the people that i'm extremely lucky to work with have then you can keep building incrementally on your knowledge and, and capitalize on that and also share that knowledge with the people around you because that same kind of feeling of excitement for discovery and upskilling oneself is beautiful because then you get excited you want to share it with the people around you that you know are pretty much on the same wavelength and so soon enough if the environment is comfortable within the team if the communication is not forced and it's just genuine then it's very easy to create an environment where the final result is way more than the sum of the parts just because everyone sees getting better at their job as a positive sum game. So there's not a competition with the others, but it's it's lifting each other's up. And I want to underscore what you said there of how this whole process of organizational learning, curiosity can be the fuel that drives that. I love this idea of voracious curiosity as the engine because you can have one person who sees something they're curious about or they read it or they watch a video and they put it in the Slack channel and say, guys, what do you think about this? Give us an idea or give us a, some feedback on this idea. And then that idea very slowly snowballs into something else that can turn into a meeting, which turns into an initiative, a test, which turns into a quarterly priority. And that all comes from having this engine of curiosity that you're you're arming your team with. So I think that's important for people to understand. Now, transitioning a little bit, one of the other really interesting dynamics that I think you have for your business is that you're able to, at once, give people the strategic lie of the land, but also be very tactical. And the listeners of Subject Matter are building businesses themselves and I think it's fair to say that there's a coaching aspect to your work as well. And we've discussed previously a handful of really interesting frameworks that you use to help your clients think through their businesses and the challenges they face. One of these frameworks that really fascinated me was this idea of how to reframe problems to unlock other opportunities. In your mind, what are the components of a successful reframe? Can you walk us through that reframing process? Reframing a problem, first of all, it is crucial to empower anybody to start tackling it. And not to quote the, the cliche Einstein was saying, uh, you know, a problem well articulated is half solved, not, you know, by chance. And... So that reframing goes back to 
almost first principles of uh, marketing and first principles of commerce in general and understanding your consumers. And so more often than not, uh, business leaders need to make decisions on in between different avenues of marketing execution and brand execution to bring the brand to life and get people through the, uh, to let them know that they exist in the first place and then slowly walk them, take them by the hand through the funnel all the way through turning them into customers and then, you know, retaining them and building lifetime value. But more often than not, those choices that they are asked to make, whether it's investment decisions or creative direction decisions and so on, are taken kind of in a vacuum, in a silo of either pure brand execution or marketing efficiency, and worst of all, path of least resistance, which is one of the biggest issues. And so why? Because fundamentally, decision makers, especially in a fast-paced industry like e-commerce, like direct-to-consumer, they don't stop enough and think about why are we doing this? How is this choice contributing to the medium and long-term of the business? And so one of the first reframing elements that I bring to the equation when I help founders as well as, you know, business leaders in in groups, in, in larger organizations is what is your objective? Where are we today and where do you need to go? Okay, great. But then what are the fundamental unit economics of your consumers that you need to nurture to be able to get to this level of output. And so one of the most common things is uh, uh, reframing practices is what matters for you as a business leader, as an executive. Tell me what matters. Okay, none out of 10 times, what matters to them is output, sales, volumes, stock that shifts and so on. Okay, great. But hang on a minute, that's output. Let's walk together to understand what are the key elements of input that allow you to generate those output and how can you make them sustainable so that then you minimize the effort and minimize the investment and over time, let's say more than minimizes, optimize in a Pareto efficient way, you know, your 80-20 kind of approach. Okay, great. So let's look at what are the elements that are the input. Why do they exist? And so you go and, and go one layer at a time. Say, okay, these are the macro elements. Fine. Let's go into how they behave differently. And so if it's marketing, if it's marketing channels, let's start talking about new customer acquisition. If you're thinking about sales, let's start thinking about new customer acquisition versus returning sales, like returning customers. Why they have extreme, although the output is exactly the same, why the balance between those two is extremely different and why you should be looking at that in a different way. For example, plenty of businesses keep shooting fish in the same barrel and trying to squeeze value as much as possible out of their customer databases. And ultimately, that doesn't drive long-term 
value because those customers either get educated into promotions and things like that. And so the long-term effect on their lifetime value decreases or the focus is so much on acquisition and on paid media that it's volume, 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 growth, 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 but that not enough attention is put on retention. And so they're throwing money and effort and time to a bucket that's very leaky. And so come the quarterly review of the performance of the business, it just isn't matching with the ambition in terms of sustainability. And so via a mix of mental models, fundamentals of how certain channels work versus others, elasticity of different channels, the importance of creative, you name it. I take them through a journey where they actually can connect the dots. And the fundamental reason why that is important is because senior executives in businesses, in D2C businesses today, vast majority of them did not grow professionally buying digital media during their career. They did not grow professionally optimizing UX design to improve conversion. They didn't design email campaigns. So they're managing people who are managing people who do that job. So possibly never as much as today, the top executives know so little about the actual reality of the everyday job of running a digital and e-commerce business. Or even worse, they think they do know. <laughs> so yeah. that's where, you know, oh, I read this article or I saw this video of XYZ. I, I won't mention names. And, and there's a lot, you know, it's easy to talk. It's a lot harder to do. And so there is fundamentally this gap in the market, a gap of understanding. And so that's why we help the executives understand the fundamental logics of how an e-commerce business works and how everything is tied together because it's a business within a business and that's what makes it so much fun. It's almost more than reframing. It's actually rediscovering the business that's already in front of you because part of this is taking a different look at the problem. But then another part of this is very... I think fairly saying, well, hang on a minute, if your goal is output nine out of 10 times, there's nuance to the output, just acquiring more customers or more leads. Well, what if they're not qualified? What if we don't have a marketing engine or a conversion engine that's going to let us convert that business? Then as you say, we've got this leaky bucket. So it really sounds like the the key for executives who are managing multiple tiers is to have a wider perspective on their businesses and to not assume that what's got us to where we are is going to get us to where we need to be. Because as you say, people who are executing newsletter campaigns, UX, UI designers, performance marketers, that didn't exist. A lot of those jobs 10, 15, 20 years ago when they were coming through the ranks. So I think having that intellectual humility to know what you don't know is 
ultimately what's going to allow you to build this hungry learning organization that we referred to a couple of minutes ago? The best leaders I worked with, I can think of a handful only, regardless of the age, regardless of the industry or, or whatnot, are the ones that are able to have a very stoic, Socratic almost approach to understanding and to knowledge and are those who embrace not knowing. You're saying the uh, a humble approach, 100%. The most successful people at work, I had the pleasure to work with are people who say, I know that I don't know this. Help me make sense of it. And so since day one, one of the things I promised myself is that whenever speaking with someone who was not an expert, who was not like in the field like me or, or like the guys on the ground doing the actual job, I would never use an acronym. I don't know how many times I said search engine optimization extended way more times than I said SEO over the times and, and you know, and add queued 150 other acronyms that we use every day in these things because there is no need to make things look harder. They're hard enough as they are. What I tell my client is e-commerce is easy. It's not difficult. It's easy in the sense that it is complex, but complex doesn't necessarily mean complicated. It's a set of different elements that have their own sense and they're relatively straightforward to understand. It's not rocket science. There's just a lot of them. So it's like a Lego building, right? A building made with Lego bricks. Each and every one of those bricks has its own identity, has its own meaning, has its own sense. And it makes sense once you start putting a lot of them together, of course, the building is may turn out to be complex, but it doesn't need to be convoluted. It doesn't need to be complicated. And the more people are involved, the kind of people who like to hide behind jargon or hide behind complexity and, and take advantage of someone's uh, lack of understanding or, or weakness in a certain field, the more these things look smoky and difficult. You know, I, I believe it was uh, Nietzsche who said, they muddy the water to make them look deep. I've seen so many consultants, I worked with so many consultants and not just consultants, even people in businesses that during board meetings, just out of insecurity, they hide themselves behind technicalities and jargon and, you know, a complication that doesn't necessarily need to exist. The thing that worked really well for me over the years was to kind of turn myself into a human API, so to speak. And here's the nerd speaking again, uh, like being the person that is able to translate technology to marketing and vice versa, marketing to retail, retail to technology, and all of these to board terminology and board financial modeling and uh, investors' way of thinking and, and modeling. And so by being this human API, that's what 
makes the business then work better and brings everyone on the same page and the technical people making them feel like they can actually have a conversation with the board team of the senior executives and vice versa. So but the gap works both ways. It's not just the executives that don't have that understanding of the underlying professions in digital e-commerce. It's also exactly the other way around. It's the marketing people not understanding the financial modeling and thinking and, and logics that a board uses. And so the way I see it, it's on both sides to find a common ground of communication and lifting each other's up. One thing to definitely underscore is this idea of the human API, I think certainly applies to founders and CEOs building technical products, because if you're working with developers, you don't have to understand the product they're building or the piece of code in as much detail as they do. In fact, they'd probably be pretty freaked out if you did. But what you do need to understand is the big idea behind what they're building and be able to translate that to sales, to marketing. That's why you have these sales engineer type roles. The other thing I want to come back to, which I think is a really powerful model is to see the businesses that we're building as inherently complex, but not inherently complicated. Because if you're listening, think about and picture the industry that you work in. That could be ed tech, that could be marketing systems, could be e-commerce, anything. I bet you that industry is very complicated. It's going to have millions and millions, if not billions, of moving pieces every single day. And trying to understand all of those is going to take years of craft. But there's an elegance in people who can simplify complexity into, like Severio said, this idea of the Lego bricks building on top of each other so that you can understand these very complex systems. I'm reminded of Ben Thompson from Stratechery, the technology writer, and he has this gift for being able to take very complex topics like why there is a real gap in the computing supply chain between very differentiated products and mass market computers. He calls it the smile curve. He says, if you imagine a smile, you have one product at the end here, one product at the end here, there's nothing in the middle of the smile. Boom, done, explained. But he's gone through so much of these repetitions to condense that idea into its simplicity. So there's, a, I think, a theme emerging in the work that you do with having that smile curve, like having the smile curve of simplicity, being able to, number one, simplify a complex industry, and number two, simplify a problem so that if you can articulate that problem clearly or you understand your industry clearly, that's going to leak through the rest of your team. And that's what really enables efficient communication in my mind. Clarity of thought immediately translates in clarity of action and, and actual performance. Mm. I try to force myself as much as possible, especially over the last however long that I've started taking my like early morning practice of writing. I'm not publishing nearly as much as I should, but I've got a whole bunch of articles in draft. But the exercise of writing about certain topics 
forces me in the first place to clarify a concept in my mind. And once it's clarified, once it's on the paper, once it's on the screen, it's a lot easier to simplify it, to convey it and make it stick. And so iterating that principle and sharing that approach with my clients and the people that I work with, bringing it to the core of it, to the essential principles without the need of knowing how to write a line of code, without the need of knowing the features of an e-commerce platform or how Facebook ad manager or, or whatever works. You don't need that. You need to understand the principles. Is the same way as you work with an architect to uh, design your house and then you have the builders and you have the plumbers and then you have everyone, you have the interior designers or whatever. Everyone, you don't need to know how to do their job. You need to know and have a very clear idea of the final, the why and the final use that you're going to make of it. Yeah, having that crystal vision of the product kind of very deeply ingrained and something that it strikes me that you've had a very clear vision of from early on in the company is the organizational structure and how you have built a team very intentionally. I'd love to dig into this a little bit because you one of the things that you've talked about with me before is this fact that Atelier and Avenue's culture allows you to prioritize agility at every turn. And something that listeners might not know is that you have been fully remote, which is now the increasing norm. You've been fully remote since day one and fully remotely compatible for nine years. So very much ahead of the the curve on that one. So how do you think that this organizational structure you've set up enables agility and quick decision-making at every turn with your team? First of all, now it's cool to say we're remote, we're a remote business and so totally. on. So we were remote. <laughs> you were remote and I before don't mean it was to cool. be a <laughs> I don't mean to be a hipster with this, but um, we were remote before it was cool. We were remote when the cool thing was to have a shiny, great office in the center of London or in the cool neighborhoods and so on. But jokes aside, it worked very, very, very well for our type of business where our focus has always been on over-delivering, setting really good expectations with our clients, but then always trying to over-deliver, which has been the kind of engine for our growth organically. Being remote was initially a way to keep overheads down, obviously, like any small business that starts. I started as a one-man band. So when you start from one to two to three to four and so on, that's where questions around how to cooperate. Should we get an office? Should we get a co-working space, a business club and, and whatnot? And eventually I landed on the decision that I did not want to scale, as in turn it into a classic pyramid scheme of a consultancy where the senior guy comes, shakes the hands to 
close the deal and then the job is done by a bunch of kids behind just out of fresh out of school behind uh, closed doors and instead being a team of senior experienced practitioners people who've done the job operators that meant that uh, we all started working together with a high sense of accountability knowing that we could trust each other deeply the people in my team are people you know everyone says oh we're like a family and so on and so forth it's it's you know more often than not it's just a nice little label put on top of some pretty difficult situations in our case these are people that i would trust not with my life but with my kids lives and on top of that they represent the excellence in their field of expertise and i am beyond blessed to be able to work with them so high accountability and the fact that i always steered clear from micromanaging i hate micromanaging i need to work with people with whom i can agree a vision and a macro direction and then i know that i can trust them and they can go and then we'll check in at the checking points as and when will make sense but i know that i can trust them on the delivery and therefore it doesn't matter where they are our team is uh, spread between uh, london italy and the netherlands and we have a bench of collaborators that we call in depending on projects which go from new york to london to melbourne you know to manage difficult time zones from europe and so it is fundamental to have people that you can trust and that have a high accountability but also high agency in the sense of spirit and understanding that they need to act to make things happen and not sit and wait that shared feeling and mutual understanding of values made so that we could all embrace a business culture, a company culture, a team culture, a group of people working together culture. Because at the end of the day, we're human beings that can all buy into a spirit and into a logic where we care about our clients, we care about the excellence in the work that we do day in and day out. And, and we understand that at the end of the day, the extra mile has non-linear returns and that to me has been one of the key principles that i've empirically come across and realized oh hang on a minute if i'm going at the beginning you know when you're a one-man band you you feel like blessed that you got your first project or your second project and you're doing nights you're working weekends you want your client to shout from the rooftops how amazing you are because it's not just to grow the business but it's just to make you feel good that you're you've made the right choice i realized over time that actually over delivering going that extra mile allowed us to just generate more business a the client was happy we might have been a bit more tired than we would have been otherwise perhaps or a little bit more stressed but then the upside was that we started building both as a business as as and singularly as people a reputation and pair that with the 
complete lack of conflict of interest on the commercial side and the ethical stance on the fact that anyone who engages me or as a coach or as an advisor or as a consultant or anybody in my team knows that they can trust us to have their interests at heart. That plus that voracious curiosity in wanting to learn your business and understand how your specific business works and an idea of going for the non-linear return that the extra mile brings has uh, turned out being a great recipe for success. And that's the reason why nine months, no, sorry, nine years later, I still haven't done any marketing for my business, <laughs> as uh, silly as it may sound. Could you underscore something there, which is the non-linear returns of the extra mile? Because I think it's very intuitive to understand that if you do extra, you're going to get extra out. If you put in the extra hour of work, there will be give or take an extra hour or so of output. But the way that you phrase this is that the extra mile has non-linear returns, that the hour you put in exactly could spike off to some unknown destination. So why do you think that the extra mile has non-linear returns as opposed to linear returns that you might see from just putting in your hours regularly? If you're doing what you're saying on the tin, if you do what your project were supposed to do straight on budget and on time, the client is going to be happy and they're likely going to call you again next time. They won't necessarily become your fans. They won't necessarily become your friends. Most of our clients have become our friends. I find it hilarious. I love it because these are incredible people. They work with fantastic brands and, and, and incredible businesses with big ambitions and so on. So the return of the extra mile is non-linear because they don't expect it. And because the baseline of the service that they're getting from either consultancies or agencies or standalone independents, uh, freelance consultants is way more than that. And what they get normally is tends to be someone who over promises and, and over delivers. And, and when, when a third party actually delivers on the promise, you know, they pop a bottle of champagne because it's, it's almost a surprise. Why? Because the structure, this is all connected to the organization and the business and operating model the way I see it. Because those kind of organizations are heavy. The agency model has been broken and falling apart in front of everyone's eyes uh, for the last however many years. Just look uh, at the share price uh, in the last uh, five uh, years or so of the various big groups, your WPPs and, and, and the likes. Uh, it's a business model that's broken and that it won't be fixed. And the only way for them to work is to have this pyramid kind of structure whereby big projects are then delivered by low cost, lower cost kind of resources. And so ultimately the outcome, unless you're a top account for that agency, you're going to get B players, C players, D players, and just kids doing a crucial piece of work for you, which hardly ever works. So the bar, in other words, is already pretty low. So if you don't just meet the bar, but 
surprise them. They're going to talk about you and just rave about what you've been doing. And so our business has been grown 95% of it by just our clients either giving us more business. I give you an example. My first client, I was blessed with my very first client being L'Oreal, which is, you know, a multi-billion global group, number one in the world. Fast forward nine years later, I just wrapped up project number 26 with them at a, at a global level. So doing that job and having clients that give you more business and then they refer you to their colleagues in other departments or other markets, and then they talk about you to friends that work in other industries, or maybe they leave a business and go and work in another business and say, hey, hang on a minute, come give me a hand. I'm, I'm, I need to crack this thing. I just arrived. I need to crack. So it just works. And it fits well with the way we we operate. But at the same time, there's a there's also an element of managing expectations, sure. which is at the early stage of a project, uh, letting clients understand where the boundaries are. And that's something that took me pain and iterations to get to learn how to say no and how to push back. The early days I was saying yes to everything and, you know, you get hurt by doing that, but then you learn. And so you manage expectations well, you help them reframing their problems because often when they ask you to solve a problem, it's not well formulated to begin with. And then you try to go the extra mile and there you go. I think that is a great note to end on some really probing food for thought for our listeners. And so if people do want to keep up with you online, Severio, and follow your ideas, where's the best place for them to follow your journey? The best place is my blog, which is SaverioBianchi.com, or I'm on Twitter, where you can find me uh, thinking out loud. Uh, it's my script book uh, for thoughts and initial concepts, so you get a sense of that. And our uh, Atelier and Avenue's website is Atelier and avenue.com but the blog is uh, uh, really the the key point saverobianchi.com fantastic saverio thanks so much been a pleasure thank you ben hey it's ben here just before you head off one quick thing this podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication and if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.